You're listening to episode two, Why Intelligence Isn't Just for Three-Letter Agencies, with Paul Colby, director of the Intelligence Project at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. You're listening to The Business of Intelligence, the podcast that explores how intelligence serves decision makers beyond the traditional national security audience. Tune in as we connect with some of the world's leading practitioners working at the intersection of business and risk in order to analyze and discuss the field of private sector intelligence. We'll talk about what's working, what isn't, and how intelligence is helping organizations navigate today's global operating environment. Welcome, everyone, to the Business of Intelligence podcast. I'm Ryan, and I am grateful and happy to be joined by my good friend and co-host, Michael. Michael, how are you doing? Great. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Greetings from Rome, and great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So listen, this is one of those episodes I know we've been looking forward to. Um, Our guests did not disappoint. We had a great conversation, which I can't wait to dive into. But as we get ready to, to sort of share that conversation with our audience, I was wondering if you had any initial thoughts. It was so exciting to have him on the show. Uh, he has, Paul has such an outstanding background in the public sector as a career case officer and intelligence officer. He really understands the intelligence cycle from the tactical to strategic levels. He went on and proved himself in the private sector and applied those skills and traits. And now he's in academia, sharing those with a new generation. And uh, it was really exciting to hear him break down uh, an article he wrote back in 2018, a CEO's brief guide to intelligence, not just for three-letter agencies. And you know, I think you'll elaborate that in, in, when you're speaking, but uh, that's kind of been a, a guide for me over the last couple of years, something that I reflect to because it's so applicable, not just to the private sector, but to intelligence in general. Yeah, I mean, when you refer to that article, in a nutshell, that's almost what this podcast is all about. And so as an ode to that article, we actually named this episode, Why Intelligence Isn't Just for Three-Letter Agencies. So you mentioned quite a few things about Paul. Let me go ahead and give everyone some background on him, and then we'll jump right in. So Paul Colby is the director of the Intelligence Project at the Belfer Center. He served for 25 years in the CIA's Directorate of Operations in a variety of foreign and domestic roles, including as Chief of Station, Chief Central Eurasia Division, and Balkans Group Chief. His overseas assignments included operational and leadership roles in the former Soviet Union, the Balkans, Southeast Asia, Southern Africa, and Central Europe. He was a member of the Senior Intelligence Service and is a recipient of the Intelligence Medal of Merit and the Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. Following his career at the agency, Paul was Director for Intelligence and Analysis at BP, where he built an enterprise-wide intelligence capability focused on geopolitical threats, strategic cyber threats, and support to commercial operations. Clients included C-suite leadership, global business units, security networks, and legal teams. Colby is a senior advisor to the Martin plus Crumpton Group and Spycraft Entertainment, and he is also a member of the Cypher Brief Network of Experts and is an alumnus of Michigan State University's James Madison College, where he studied international relations. So with that backdrop in mind, we really hope you all enjoy our conversation with Paul Colby. Enjoy, everyone. Paul, good morning, and welcome to the Business of Intelligence podcast. Hey, good morning, Ryan. How are you? Good. We are so glad to have you. I, I thought I would start by laying the groundwork for the conversation. 
the first thing I wanted to point out was, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the spring of 2018, you published an article called A CEO's Brief Guide to Intelligence, Not Just for Three-Letter Agencies. And we're going to draw a lot upon that today. And in fact, we, we named this episode Intelligence, Not Just for Three-Letter Agencies. And, and so for everyone listening, I think that should be mandatory reading for you. I think it should serve as a roadmap. And of course, if you can, you know, share that with your decision makers as well, because I, I think it'll help them. But I actually want to start with a, a memory, um, something that's stuck with me ever since I first met you. So a few years ago, you were speaking at a conference and I happened to be taking notes. And there was something that I remember vividly that has stuck with me ever since and that I've used. And you were talking about within private sector teams, um, you know, having Intel analysts, you actually called your Intel analysts Intel advisors. And so that really resonated with me. I was wondering if you could share with us, you know, why you did that or, or sort of what went into that. Sure. Look, I, I think if you call your team or yourself intelligence analysts, you too narrowly cast the role because in the intelligence community, you've got the size and luxury to be able to specialize. You can have collectors, you can have analysts, you can have technical folks, you can have folks that are focused on production and delivery, you know, folks that are focused on feedback. But in a business setting, teams are either one person or, you know, just a few people. You don't have the luxury to be able to say, I just do windows, I just do analysis. You actually have to be a full service station, full service intelligence officer in one person or in one team. So what does that mean? It means you have to be able to be engaged with the customer or client or recipient of the intelligence so you know what their questions and requirements are. You have to be able to go out and have the collection capability, the networks, the firms, the contacts, et cetera, that enable you to collect against the questions that are being asked by the business leaders. You need to be able to then analyze that collection so that it applies to the question so that it can be fed back in a uh, finished, concise, processed form to the customer. Uh, and then and then uh, uh, get the feedback uh, and continue again in that iterative intelligence cycle. Yeah, I, I love that. And like I said, that has resonated with me and stuck with me. And, and to be honest, I've adopted that um, with our team ever since, you know, I heard that. And so for everyone listening, you know, I would just say, don't sell yourself short. I mean, once you listen to that, I think, and take that approach, there's so many things that you can do in terms of being able to tell your story, explain to others what you're doing. So I just absolutely love that and thought we'd start with that. But um, I do want to go back even a little bit further. Uh, anytime we talk with our guests, we, we want to learn a little bit more about them, sort of how you got where you are today. So I, I guess that's where we want to start. You know, how did you get where you are today? Meaning, how did you specifically become interested in a career in intelligence? Let me just add one quick thing on why it's important not to be just an analyst. I think there's a danger that you fall into that you become too much of an observer, too passive mm. in, in the role of intelligence in a company. And I think in the company, you've got to make sure that intelligence, when it's passed along, whether it's threat intelligence, whether it's commercial opportunity, whatever, that that um, you're taking an active role in making sure that it gets seen, understood, and used and acted upon. You can't just throw 
uh, your intelligence, your reporting over the transom, and then go on to the next next task. And so I think that's another reason why it's really important to think of yourself as a kind of a full service intelligence uh, officer rather than just limiting yourself as an analyst. How did I get started in thinking about intelligence? Look, I grew up in a family sitting around the dinner table listening to my parents talk about living overseas. My dad had been in the military, uh, you know, kind of post-war Europe. Um, and, and I loved the stories. I loved the, you know, the exotic places they talked about um, or what seemed like exotic places. And I had a, a another relative that was, you know, teaching schools in places like Laos and Algeria and the uh, Emirates at the time. And all of it just seemed like re- really interesting and, and exciting. And and so I was just, I, I, you know, I knew I wanted to have a, a job that took me overseas somewhere. I thought it was going to be State Department or hoped it was, was going to be State Department. But I was really interested, you know, just, you know, curious and looking for a sense, sense of adventure. And um, so I studied international relations, went through about 15 different jobs before I finally got a, got a job offer from, uh, from the agency you know, sort of kept butting my head against the, the, you know, against the walls and getting rejected. And then, you know, finally managed to slip in, you know, when the, the standards dropped at, at one point. <laughs> I find that hard to believe. I think we're probably lucky to have you, but <laughs> we'll take you at your word. So, no, that's that's really interesting. And, and just to sort of, I guess, connect to that a little bit. I mean, you had this you know, distinguished career of service. And I know what was an extremely meaningful career. So then thinking about making this transition from a career of service in the government to the private sector, was there anything that you learned, any sort of lessons learned for implementing a private sector program that you could take away from the government that provided useful? Yeah, look, I think, um, look, so I was a case officer, I spent you know, sort of my career moving to different places, um, you know, learning different languages, learning different cultures, you know, learning different histories. Uh, and, and all of that applies when you jump out of the government into a private sector organization. You have to learn a new culture. You have to learn a new language uh, of business. You have to, you know, quickly unlearn your government acronyms and and quickly unlearn the, well, I used to, or the way we used to do, you know, because in, in uh, you know, intelligence in the private sector is very different and the requirements are very different and the cultures are, are also very different. That said, organizations are organizations and they all have their own, you know, sort of dynamics. They have their own kind of histories and organizational cultures. And it, and so I, I think one of the first lessons is to spend a lot of time with your ears open and your mouth shut, unless you're asking questions. I think that was probably the most important piece. And then the second is understanding that, um, that many of the assumptions that you have and things that seem obvious or apparent or words or actions that have specific meaning um, in a government intelligence context won't necessarily resonate or have the same meaning for folks that that you're dealing with uh, in in your uh, uh, among your uh, your corporate colleagues or your business colleagues they'll have a set of assumptions about what an intelligence agency does and is um, that either may be wildly exaggerated in terms of the capability or or wildly skeptical uh, about what it might entail, um, or have entirely unrealistic ideas about, um, you know, sort of James Bond-like activities and, and what that might mean. Yeah, it, it's interesting. There's 
there's always these perceptions or misunderstandings. There's always an educational component, I think, of what we have to do in the private sector, whether you're transitioning from government or maybe you just came out of the private sector, you, you know, in the first place. But that that sort of gets to the heart of even what this podcast is about. And so the answer to this question, this next question, it's going to be it's going to seem obvious to private sector practitioners. But for private sector decision makers who might be listening or maybe those currently in the government who are interesting, you know, why do private sector organizations even need intelligence and, and how can it benefit them? fundamental answer is that, you know, everybody's making decisions and the better information that you have, the less ambiguity, the more clarity, the better decisions you're going to make. And intelligence does just that. It helps reduce ambiguity. It helps add context. Um, it helps add facts, but also adds analysis when facts are lacking and facts are almost always lacking. It's uh, so in an intelligence context, you know, whatever decision a business leader is making, whether it's around trying to assess risk, you know, what threats do I face? Um, how do I mitigate those threats to how do I best understand uh, who I'm dealing with, who my counterparties are, who my potential partners are, who my negotiating counterparties are, um, or what is this environment that I want to move into? Um, intelligence can help provide great Sometimes um, marginal, sometimes. Uh, hey, Paul, how you doing? This uh, is Mike. Uh, thanks again for being here. In, in making better decisions. Uh, following up, uh, Ryan, you know, obviously the, the theme of our discussion today is the CEO's brief guide to intelligence. Hey, Mike. And uh, again, we could go so many different ways with with the article. Uh, you know, I, I think Ryan and I have both poured over it multiple, multiple times. Uh, one thing that really resonated with both of us was um, you said, um, and I'm reading from the article right now, the, the key takeaway for the executive is that the best intelligence goes to the best clients. Could you just uh, you know elaborate for the audience a little more? Because I think that's such a critical piece. It means that by being a good client, it means being engaged in the process, being an active uh, part of it. And again, not just assuming that you're a passive recipient of a product um, you know that's going to help you. When you think about and discuss with your intelligence team or your intelligence providers, you know, what you're trying to accomplish, what your goals are, um, what problems you're running into, and then take the information, the intelligence that comes back and query it, dig into it, find out where it helps you convey that back, see where it doesn't help you, where you still have gaps and convey that back and, and engage in a really iterative process of question and answer. And you'll end up, A, having a team that's more motivated and more effective because, A, they're going to see the results of their work. And if there's anything that intelligence team and intelligence analysts want, it's to know that their work is useful and is being used in decisions. Um, there's nothing more frustrating than to, you know, be constantly feeding, you know, up or up or out um, information, which, you know, could be um, decisive or helpful uh, avert trouble or help the company prosper, um, only to see it not get read, not get used, um, not be understood. So the more that you as a leader engage with the team um, to make sure that they understand what you need, the better product, the better results, the better team you'll have. 
You know, just on a related note, I mean, you're talking about being an active participant in the process, which we couldn't agree with more. And in fact, on the last episode, we talked about the idea of intelligence being a participatory sport. You know, you can't just sit on the sidelines and throw things out there and see what see what sticks. And so, you know, I know there's folks out there listening that might have this challenge in terms of being able or being allowed to engage with customers. It's hard for me to be able to, it's hard for me to say that because I still can't believe that's happening, but I I know that it is. Um, There are some organizations where maybe the culture is very hierarchical and, and people on the team just don't have the ability to engage with the customer like they want to. So I, I don't know if you'd ever experienced that or if you have any advice for people that experience that in terms of trying to overcome that a little bit? I, look, I, I, I think what I can guarantee in, in every, every instance is that there's always great latent demand for what you're able to do and what you're able to produce. And what do I mean by that? I mean that there's you know parts of the company, people in the company that have no idea what you're able to do, how you're able to do it, and how it can help them. And you can just start pushing against that a little bit. You can start going out and spe- you know, specifically making sure. You can start off as, as just a, a kind of an area of familiarization exercise. Let me understand better what different parts of the company are you doing. Schedule an office call, schedule a visit, trap someone by the cooler schedule a Zoom call with them and find out a little bit more about what they do, what issues they're running into, and see if there's uh, areas where you might be able to help them. Never let a question go to waste and never let a crisis um, go to waste. Because when there's a question, it always means there's something someone's something that someone's trying to do that they need some help with. And usually the question is too narrowly cast. And if you sort of get down to the bottom of what that question is, you'll get to the bottom of what they're trying to do and you'll find ways or uh, quickly see ways where you're able to actually not just answer the narrow question that's being asked, but actually to provide better background, better context, better intelligence that helps them in the, in the wider, the wider um, discussion. I'll give an example maybe would, would, would be helpful. So, I mean, a lot of times someone's, you know, an intelligence team will look at a question of, well, you know, t- what can you tell me is, uh, you know, any risk in dealing with so-and-so? Okay. Or is there, you know, is there any, any derogatory information on, 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 on this person? Okay. It's easy. That's a, a task, easy to go out and find, well, is there any, you know, any bad press, anything that, that looks, but but you're not going to be very effective if you don't understand why that question is being asked and what the company already knows or what the asker already knows. Is this person a potential business partner? Is there is a deal being discussed? Is there has there been a you know some sort of legal issue that's run into? And once you, and once you start understanding what's what's being asked, the second question is well what do what do we already know? And and always always there's there's much more that's already been known that's already being assumed you know that hasn't hasn't been conveyed to you so a you can save yourself a lot of time and wheel spinning um uh by taking what's already known you know within the company or from the asker and then if you can then focus your question um better in terms of well i'm you know what i'm actually trying to find out is uh is this person who uh, is uh, entering and negotiating with with do they have any relatives in the government that we have to uh, worry about? Because we heard that his brother-in-law is so and so. Okay, well that's that gives you a lot a lot of handholds to to start you know diving in and gives you a much better 
kind of focus of your questions. And then, but underlying that question is, do I have to worry about a corruption risk? I mean, implicit in that question is, do I have to worry about a corruption risk here? Is And, and, that, and then that opens up a whole nother set of questions. Okay, well, maybe, no, it's not the brother-in-law, but yes, you do have to worry about a corruption risk because this person is engaged, you know, is closely related to A, B, C, or D, and, and, and so you can start, you know, both focusing in, but invariably also finding other questions that are unasked that should be. Yeah, it's it's such great advice, all that. And there's no way that you can do that if you're not actively engaged, if you're not participating in the process. So th the other thing that really stood out to me with that is the, the idea of asking the question, what do we already know? I think that's something that's sort of underestimated or understated. It's something that is really, really important because I, I just know on a personal level, the last thing I ever want to do is share something with a decision maker when they already know the answer. I don't bring them anything new. I don't bring them anything insightful. It can be embarrassing and obviously it can, it can hurt our credibility. So I think asking that question is really important. And, you know, going back even a step further, I was just thinking about the virtual environment, which, you know, has so many benefits. I know a lot of people are enjoying it. But I will say, when you said running in, into somebody at the water cooler, I mean, th there is something to be said about being in an office environment every now and again and being able to build rapport with people and being able to just be ready to spot those opportunities, which, which you talked about. And I think is another sort of strategy that intel intelligence practitioners have to be good at it, which is spotting opportunities and then being ready for those uh, when they arise. So just as a quick follow-up, um, and, and then Michael, turn this back over to you, but as a quick follow-up with the article, another thing that really caught our eye was you you talked about how the first step of building an intel capability is to first view intelligence as a distinct corporate discipline. And we wanted to talk to you about this because, I, first of all, I can't tell you how much that's resonated. It's been an inspiration behind what we're doing with it, with this podcast. It's sort of like one of the driving missions, if you will, of turning intelligence into a distinct corporate discipline. So. I was just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that belief and where did you start thinking about that or, or how do you think about that? I mean, in the government sector, it's, you know, you know, intelligence as a, not only as a, as a corporate discipline, but as a major arm of government and a major capability of, of government is, is well established, but within business by and large intelligence is treated often as an, an ancillary support function that makes another function a little bit better. And, and that's not wrong. Intelligence, you know, can, is a support function fundamentally, right? Even within government, intelligence is designed to support decision-making. Even if you have agencies, that, that that's all they do is produce, you know, the intelligence product and provide intelligence capability. But within a company, often it gets pigeonholed underneath security, or underneath legal, so it's just seen as ancillary to that, and not viewed as as an independent capability that can cut across any problem that the company um, faces. So intelligence can help traders. Intelligence can help folks that are doing mergers and acquisitions. Intelligence can be a huge help to your legal teams. Intelligence certainly is is uh, uh, critical to a good security function. Uh, intelligence can help with uh, strategic planning at a C-suite level. So I, I think that intelligence 
more than just about any other function in a company, has the ability to cut across all corporate functions, to cut across geographies, and to break silos. Um, to make sure that you've got different parts of the organization, you know, coming together and talking to each other, sharing what they already know. If you could elaborate a little more on the importance of having trained and experienced risk professionals, particularly in-house, because I think sometimes that that's something we see different companies, how they balance. And you've referred to that in the past, how they how they balance in-house versus going to vendors. And uh, I'd love to hear your more insights on that. Yeah, I think there's you know a few major advantages for having an in-house capability. Even if that in-house capability is just one person, you know you don't you don't have to have you know a you know a huge multi-million dollar investment. But one is I think it's ha- having someone close and trusted that's part of the organization, part of the corporate family is is really important. You know, it's one thing I, I think to um, when you've got um, a, a team that's part of the company in terms of the level of trust, the level of openness, level of confidence that you have, as opposed to going out to a vendor network, right? Uh, and and just of rent, you know, renting, you know, renting the experience, renting the uh, uh, the team, um, because there's always going to be a, you know, however good and however close the team is, there's always going to be a barrier there, and there's always going to be different. Um, drivers and interests there fundamentally, right? One's a vendor, one's a one, one's a client, so it's a different relationship. Um, you also, if you don't have an in-house capability, you don't have an ability to have professional quality control. You know, we all know that there's some great firms out there, some great capability, and there's some really shabby ones. And there's ones that can get you in trouble in a heartbeat because they'll be working illegally, unethically, putting your reputation at risk without you even knowing it. And so it's important to have a professional casking gimlet eye over their proposals, their costing, their methods, um, their sourcing, so that you can be assured uh, and that you can assure your corporate leadership. Along the same lines, uh, the right size intelligence capability, we all know that it can provide return on investment in terms of money saved, risk reduced, and opportunities identified. Just uh, throughout your experience in the private sector in particular, could you share with the audience some key performance indicators that you've used to demonstrate the the utility provided to decision makers? You know, I think one one of, for me, I mean, that's, that's always a question of, well, you know, how, you know, how, uh, are you a cost center, or uh, or, or uh, how do you, how do you show your value? Uh, and there's a lot of ways to do it. A lot of times, you know, f- folks sort of tally up. Here's the you know value of the deals or the you know projects that have been advised. Here's decisions that were made, you know, for or against to do or not do something. And so there's those are data points. For me, one of the best data points was um, was uh, repeat business and walk-in business uh, and word of mouth business. So when when you would find Parts of the company that you had never engaged with, or geogra- geographies, coming to you and saying, "Hey, look, you know, I heard from so and so that that you might be able to help with whatever question or whatever problem they're facing." And sometimes it's a question, sometimes it's just posed as a as as a problem. That's a really good sign that someone else has gotten value out of what, what you're doing. So I think that that both the um, the number of repeat 
customers they come back and say hey that was re- really helpful now can you can you do this and then new customers that come from word of mouth for me that's a, a great metric um, of uh, of effectiveness uh, and something to strive for because again i think it, it touches on that piece of helping to you know either quickly or, or you know either revolutionarily or or evolutionarily you know expand you know the, the capability and contribution that your team or you can make um, within the company. Yeah, I love that. I mean, we, we talk about, and when I say we, I mean the, just the private sector community of practitioners. We talk about measurements and metrics and KPIs all the time. And I, we should probably do an episode on it because it's something that's always on the forefront of everyone's mind. But I think the idea of, Hey, let's stop counting everything. I mean, maybe in some circumstances that's relevant, but you know, where do we have people coming back and asking for more or first time customers because, you know, of the reputation of the team, they heard great things. So they want a little bit of that. So I can't think of something that would be more telling than what you just talked about in terms of repeat business or word of mouth business. I think that's great. So listen, we're going to get ready to transition a little bit to talk about the intelligence project, but I wanted to sort of focus on one final area real quick. And I'm, I'm trying to set myself up for this question. I want to reemphasize something that you said, Paul, because I, I think it's incredibly, incredibly powerful. And I want to make sure that everyone caught this. And that that is that intelligence can cut across all corporate functions. It can cut across all geographies and it can break silos. And to me, that's the sort of power of this function. And something else that you alluded to, this function is oftentimes, for various reasons, neither good nor bad, and I'm not passing judgment on this, but this function is oftentimes nested within global security departments. I think there's a lot of benefits to that, but I think there's some opportunities there as well. And so when I think about that, I think of that as an existing paradigm. You know, that paradigm has been around really since I came into the private sector about nine years ago. So as we get ready to talk about the intelligence project, I I wanted to sort of ask you this question. When you're leading or part of an in-house function and, you know, you're sort of doing the the day-to-day, you're making the sausage, so to speak, I think it's easy to get this form of tunnel vision from dealing with the urgency, the immediate, et cetera. But now that you've transitioned to Harvard and reflecting back on it all now, you know, is there any sort of paradigm or way of working that Intel practitioners should be questioning or doing differently these days? So I guess in other words, where do we need to be a little bit more innovative maybe in terms of our approaches? And, um, you know, having having moved out of that position from BP, I, I'm just not sure if you've had time to reflect back on it a little bit, but we thought we'd ask you that. Yeah, I, I think um, that's a, it's a really good question. I, I think there's real danger in, in getting trapped in the structures or being limited by expectations, which are too low, um, and also of getting trapped in a in kind of a process. What do I mean by that? If you've got a battle rhythm that is really focused on, you know, providing a daily summary or a weekly summary or an update of stuff that's happened, um, I think you're uh, probably wasting a lot of time and wasting a lot of opportunity and probably not having the impact that you 
could have. As soon as you get caught in the the um, the tyranny of of a daily deadline, it takes all your attention and focus down down and in to that. Whereas if you are really thinking about what are the things that are truly important and that are not just looking back but are looking ahead at the at the implications and the questions and the the you know the forks in the road that the company or the unit or or the corporate function may be may be coming to, um, and if you can help get out ahead of that and provide a little bit of the roadmap so that when people come to that fork in the road, you've got a product and you've got or a discussion that can help them decide: Do I go down either of these forks or do I turn around and, and head back? Um, I think you'll be in a much stronger position, and that's where you really see um, value. Um, uh, start to be delivered. You know the the team the teams are too small, um, and t- too much stuff is going on. You know to to be um, uh, caught in that cycle. But but a lot of times that's what you know a chief security officer or you know a chief of staff you know whoever's getting that will they want you know I want my morning you know my morning summary of uh, of stuff that's happened around the world or happened in proximity to our facilities. You know whatever that whatever that you know, sort of set of parameters are that, you, that you're writing to. I just think that you end up uh, in a process that ends up not providing the value that it could and not exploiting the capability that you can provide. Yeah, I, I don't know if that could be said any better. <laughs> so I can't, I can't wait for everyone to hear that. I'll, I'll just ask you a very, very quick follow up. Is there any way to sort of break that cycle? Sort of early in BP, it was, you know, we're sort of doing this, you know, regular, you know, sort of production and, you know, spending a you know, huge amount of time and, uh, and basically all, you know, the whole team's focus was on getting this product out, right. All the focus. And I thought, you know, here, here's one way to measure impact. Let's stop doing it and see if anybody complains. Um, and, you know, yes. sure enough did that. Yes. And, and, um, and no, nobody did. So I like, well, okay, well, that's, that's pretty good feedback that this isn't particularly useful because no one's coming back and saying, well, where's my, you know, thing. And, and so that freed up enormous amount of time and focus to be able to think about, well, if that's not valuable, what is? So, yeah, I know that won't work, you know, that, in every, every situation for everyone, but I, you know, I think you just have to push the envelope on that and, and kind of reeducate. And as soon as people see something that's more valuable then they're, then the other stuff is forgotten. That is incredibly simple yet incredibly powerful. And so for everyone listening, again, when we talk about metrics and you want feedback, just stop doing something and measure that feedback and see what comes back. That's, again, I think that's really insightful and I, I hope everyone's sort of following along here. So, okay, well, that's Listen, that, that was great advice. I, I want to talk about the intelligence project for a minute. And when I first heard about it, I think I was on LinkedIn and I might have seen a notification or something that, that you had moved over to Harvard. And when I first read, you know, the intelligence project, it immediately sounded like one of the most interesting jobs in the world to me. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about it and, and tell us about the work that you're doing at Harvard. So um, the intelligence project sits in um, a, a think tank at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. That's the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, and that hosts uh, is you know an umbrella for a bunch of different activities, projects, programs, um, but really all focused around better understanding and policy 
impacting policy around a number of different areas, foreign and domestic, and, and helping to prepare sort of a new generation of policymakers. So um, within that, the intelligence project is really focused on a couple of things. One is um, helping to provide uh, a space for students at the Harvard Kennedy School and at Harvard and law school and business school that to, to learn about intelligence, uh, to um, get a better understanding of both of the basics of the history how it gets applied in government and where intelligence meets policy. And I think if there's any real focus, it's trying to focus in on that area where, you know, the handoff from intelligence to policy and how the two affect each other, sort of that big kind of area of, of interaction. And when you study intelligence failures, often you'll find the core of an intelligence failure is because there hasn't been a good interaction between at that nexus where the intelligence and policy meets. So, right. So either intelligence doesn't deliver what policy needs uh, or deliver something wrong. Think about um, Iraq WMD or Pearl Harbor or, you know, areas where, you know, intelligence didn't provide, you know, the decisive information um, that let policy make the right decision or policy takes intelligence and uses it badly or doesn't understand it. Um, or uh, or hasn't asked the right question or ignores it. Um, you know, some folks will argue that there was, you know, uh, before 9-11, there was no shortage of strategic warning uh, that an attack was coming. Um, there was no shortage of efforts of um, various agencies to prompt more aggressive action to forestall what might be coming for lots of reasons, policy not um uh, policymakers not uh, not following up on those decisions. So you can find lots of areas where you have an intelligence failure that's cast as a as a policy as an intelligence failure, <laughs> and, and intelligence often takes the blame. You know, sort of time honored role of being the scapegoat. Um, uh, but there's certainly many many instances where where intelligence itself failed to deliver because they didn't understand policy requirements, they weren't close enough to it, or they didn't provide uh, what was needed. So I think focusing on we, we like to focus on that 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 interaction. There's a lot of um, at the Kennedy School. There's a lot of folks that will be future consumers of intelligence. So we try to we want them to better understand how to effectively use intelligence, how to engage, you know, with your briefer or with your analyst or with the community. What's what are reasonable expectations? What are unreasonable expectations? Um, what are uh, erroneous assumptions about what what can be done or what should be done? Uh, and I think that applies equally in a business context. So we're trying to as well sort of bring it, bring in a greater focus on intelligence in the private sector and how it's used, how it's evolving uh, and where it can go. Well, that's a that's a great segue to the next question. You know, I'm really interested in climate change just on a personal and professional level. I was checking out the site and I, I was reading a report called Climate Change, Intelligence and Global Security, which is mm -hmm. fascinating to me. And I, I think it's fantastic. But that leads to the question. I mean, is there anything for the private sector? I mean, is there whether it's research or events or anything that the private sector could take away from what is, I think, just really interesting and important work that, that you all are doing there? Well, I think uh, on climate change specifically. No, just I mean, in general, just about oh, the process no, I think in general. 
Yeah, no, I think there's I think there's a lot that the private sector um, uh, can can take away both from the project and then some of the different issues. So, I mean, we've over the last year we we spent some time focusing both on intelligence and climate change and also uh, diversity. Uh, in the IC and kind of the history of of um, of efforts of the intelligence community to increase diversity. What's what's worked? What hasn't worked? Uh, why it hasn't hasn't worked? And I think certainly private sector intel teams and corporations can take some lessons from that. In particular, some of the things that are tried over and over and repeated over and over without <laughs> appreciably changing the results. I think looking at some of the distinctions between uh, both the advantages that the private sector has in terms of actually having some a leg up on government in in terms of what and how it's able to collect the types of insights that are being able to apply the breadth, um, but also the you know the 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 limitations. How do you, on the former part, I think you know so much advantage is going over to the private sector simply because of the ubiquitousness and usefulness of open source intelligence. You look at yeah. completely private organizations like Bellingcat uh, and some others that produce stunning. Uh, collection and analysis with no government involvement, uncovering some, you know, deep secrets by information that's out there, if you know how and where to find it. So I think that I think that's a a place where there's, um, uh, you know, huge untapped potential, you know, across private sector organizations, uh, with a a few places really kind of leading the way. I think there's a lot for governments to learn government intelligence agencies to learn, you know, that piece of, of the, it's, it's so valuable uh, for folks who are in government to step out of the classified bubble and to be forced to think about problems without having the special uh, collection uh, uh, sources, without having a classified network to build in and what can be done um, out of that. And, and I think that um, you can just about always get to the 80 or 90% solution, if not more, um, uh, which is usually good enough. And in some cases, you can be, you know, ha- ha- just because of the access, the location, the insights and, and networks that you have, you can do um, much better than government organizations. Yeah, we, we talked about that a little bit in, in the last episode. Another paradigm shift from this world of secrets to open source information that's available, you know, to to almost anyone and and being able to draw actionable insights from that. And it's not, you know, just about these sources and methods these days anymore, um, you know, that are, that are on the secret level. So, well, well, thanks for that. I mean, it's such, it's such an interesting project. There's so much, um, fantastic research on there. I, I would just encourage everyone to take a look. And I think in the show notes, we'll certainly link, you know, the, the website and everything, but I would encourage everyone to take a look. I'm going to ask you one more quick question, and then we'll start to wrap this up with uh, the rapid fire section, which I hope you find interesting and fun. And Michael, take us through that. But, um, you know, the, the podcast is obviously about exploring this field of private sector intelligence, what's working, what's not, how can we innovate, how can we get better? But the sort of second part of that mission, if you will, is we're trying to send this message that intelligence can help private sector um, organizations sort of navigate this this global operating environment that we're all in right now. And, you know, you, you spoke to this at the beginning, but I, I was curious, doing what you're doing now, what do you see as potentially the biggest challenges that multi or multinational organizations face today, or maybe it's just simply something that we're not thinking about right now that we should be thinking about. Well, 
what are the biggest challenges that multinational organizations face today? Well, where do you, where, uh, where do you start with that? Look, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I know that's really broad. A, I don't know if you want to, if there's something that just evokes an emotional response or comes, you know, to mind right away. I mean, there's, there's, there's always the new crisis. There's always the new thing coming around the corner, but, but I, I think, you know, most important is to understand that, that changes is happening so fast threats, um, evolve so quickly, you know, risk manifests, um, so unexpectedly that the ability to stay nimble, um, to keep looking out and asking questions, you know, what is this, what is happening and what does this mean? Uh, and then what do I do about it? I mean, we used to, you know, in the reporting, it was always, you know, thinking about, you know, make sure you're talking about the, what the, so what, and then, and the now what, and, and I think, you know, can keeping that, that, that focus, um, is really important, whether it's for a, a CEO or for, for, or for an intelligence team is to be constantly kind of looking out and asking those, those, those questions, uh, because it's always going to be something different, right? I, I remember interviewing a, a while back, um, someone for a role, um, on our intelligence team. And, and, uh, he, he spent, and this was, you know, maybe six years ago and, and he spent the whole interview talking about, um, Pan, you know, we were talking about threats and stuff, and he, and he kept talking about pandemic and you know what it could cause and stuff like that. And, and like we, we were like, okay, we yeah, we get a pandemic, but now let's talk about you know terrorism and civil unrest and cyber, the things that are really you know going <laughs> to happen. And, and he kept coming back to pandemic, and we were like, wow, geez, you know, I mean, he's a little obsessed, but you know, what, what are the chances? You know, I look back now, and it's like, well, <laughs> you know, yeah, and and it was right. just and and. and and it was just that, you know, that piece of, yeah, I get it. It would be important, but you know, w w what are the chances? Whereas if you, you know, actually, you know, sat back, done a real assessment, you know, you, you know, could have come to the conclusions that, that uh, others did and that we certainly saw of, you know, events having, you know, having profound systemic impact, um, you know, that if you could be a little bit ahead of, you're going to have, you know, a huge advantage. Um, so I think it's that that piece of of being able to challenge your own biases and and keep an open mind on on you know both good and bad that's out there. So if that person is listening right now, should have hired, saying, I told hired you, you, man. I told you so. <laughs> yeah, you, you should have listened to me. But <laughs> but no, I, I I think that's I think that's really great advice because there's always going to be something different, as you said, and. Uh, it's really about adopting this mindset that you laid out. I mean, staying nimble, being able to ask the right questions. Oh man, there's a million places, but, and it all depends on time and context, but I, you know, I, I love, uh, Indonesia love Jakarta um, just because it's such an incredibly rich environment, incredibly rich place with with layers after layers after layers of of different cultures, religions, languages, all kind of lacquered on top of each other in this really rich. Uh, One quick follow up: uh, how, What's the minimum amount of time you'd recommend someone to go world, there to um, get a with, feel of some uh, of those different layers? People um, and. Um, an incredible history. So I think, I mean, that's, I could, I could go just talk all day about other favorite places in the world, but I think that's one of them.
Well, I always used to say Jakarta is a, a terrible place to visit and a wonderful place to live. And, and it's a ter- it was a terrible place to visit because it was, you know, so loud, noisy, chaotic, uh, you know, dirty. You know, it was, it's hard, you know, if you're just stepping in, you know, you can really, you know, a lot of people would walk away with, you know, with really bad impression. But if you have a chance to to stay there and be there and, and to, you know, let the let that noise fade into the background and start to see some of the, the, the richness that, that um you know lays underneath that cacophony, then then um uh then um it's really valuable. So I think, you know, you you, you want to be able to spend some time there. And then just traveling through the through through Indonesia. Wow, very cool. Um, Thanks. I'm actually, you know, I actually different islands, myself there. But, you know, uh, Ryan and I broke the average travelers you know, in, and in some ways somewhere I might have been out of my list. But also cool. each with their completely um, with a with what's, a different what's a book or article or vibe, presentation um, that you read that recently and you'd recommend that, um, for other people to feel to learn from a long time. So there's a, there's a book that's just come out, and, and I'm not recommending it because it's good, because I don't think it's particularly good, uh, but I think it's important for folks to read because it will convey what a lot of people think about the industry. And it's uh, spooked. Uh, it's called Spooked and some, something along the lines of, you know, uh, I can't remember what the, the subtitle is offhand. But it's, it's a piece that basically – um, you know, the theme is, you know, the private sector intelligence industry is filled with, you know, uh, un- unethical rogues, uh, charla- rogues and charlatans, you know, who are conducting, you know, massive covert action campaigns, influence campaigns, uh, and, uh, you know, shaping events in this, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, malign uh, secret capability, um, and 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 what it does is it paints the the entire industry, you know, with the brush of 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 uh, a few of the um, organizations and folks that have, um, you know, created uh, problems or worked unethically, um, uh, and it ignores. Uh, what just about everyone listening knows to be the truth that within the private sector, whether they're on the vendor side or on the, or, or on the, you know, kind of corporate in-house side, places that work, you know, to high ethical and legal standards providing um, uh, value uh, to their clients in, in a way that's not only not secret, but quite open and transparent. Um, so I think it's, it's, a good book to read, if only because it will spark um, uh, indignant outrage um, <laughs> as, as you go as you go through it. And it, and it really and it, and and, yeah. and it, it's really a misleading title as well because it really focuses. You know, while it purports to talk about the entire industry and and, and that, it really focuses on on the um, uh, 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 Trump dossier. You know, Chris Steele and the Trump dossiers and and and. Uh, the you know the different implications of that, as well as some of the other cases where, you know, Israeli company Black Cube was involved in efforts around Harvey I, Weinstein. I think you made some a, of the oops, things like that where, uh, you know, f- folks are you know clearly pushing ethical if not legal boundaries, um, uh, and which is one of the reasons why uh, you want to have people who know what they're doing on your 
uh, in your company uh, to protect you from organizations uh, that won't protect you. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I was just going to jump in just because I, I actually just finished this. I, I couldn't agree more. And so I wanted to, for everyone listening, it is called Spooked, the Trump Dossier, Black Cube, and the Rise of Private Spies. And it's by Barry Meyer. And I, I think it's a great recommendation for all the reasons I, I, Paul just said. And the, interestingly enough, the title, the U.S. title is different. I was just going to add that. I haven't read the, the book, but I think you, you both make a UK, really great point. The title where, didn't refer I mean, that, to the Trump dossier. That's the kind of book where you never know like what decision maker or you know, the, senior the executive read when they're in the airport you know, and they walk away with like a bad that. taste in their mouth. So it's really it good to understand what the other talking points out there. They're targeting a certain audience. How it's actually not accurate and not indicative of what we can provide as intel professionals. Uh, one uh, next next question we had for you, and I think you know, as I, I caveated with our with our first guest, uh, can't cheat and say a global pandemic. But uh, if you could give us uh, an example of an unknown unknown that you faced in your career, particularly private sector, if you could think of one where you were just kind of caught flat-footed, and maybe walk us through how you adjusted and what you learned from that situation. Um, so when I was at BP, there was a, um, the company was in a joint venture, uh, in Algeria with stat oil, Norwegian oil company and uh Sonatrack Algerian oil company, um, uh, at a place called Inaminas. And there was a terrorist attack at Inaminas, um, uh, 41 people killed, uh, four Americans, um, uh, in a horrific um, attack that originated out of Mali. Um, this is in 2013. And so we, you know, our team had been, you know, looking at trends in North Africa, um, uh, events in Libya, uh, the uh, expansion of Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, what was happening in um, Mali with the French intervention with Operation Barkhane. Um and, and had assessed that there was a rising uh, potential for terrorist attack in the region, including in, in Algeria. Um, but the unknown unknown was that we didn't know that there was a uh, terrorist band led by a man named Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar, who the French and Algerians had been tracing for uh, years and years and years, um, who was planning uh, an attack to come up from Mali through Libya, across the border into Algeria, uh, and attacking this, um, you know, and, and circumventing the Algerian um, uh, military forces stationed around the area and, and attacking the facility. The unknown unknown was that was the attack, you know, that we could assess that there was a rising strategic threat. We didn't have the ability, couldn't, you know, assess you know, the tactical date, time, place uh, of an attack that was, was going to come, you know, to be able to provide tactical warning. And I think that's one of the challenges that teams, you know, in, in, when you're looking at a, at a threat context, it's um, it's really hard uh, for any team, whether in government or private sector, um, uh, to provide that tactical warning, but it's often expected. 
Um, and so I think that's, um, that's part of the piece of, of, um, you know, thinking about how intelligence gets used or how your, how your assessments and then the analysis might get used. Um, Thanks, you have Chair. To think that's about, a great example. Okay, Appreciate provide that. strategic warning, but then um, last we'll question force yourself with to Paul, ask and we force the business um, to ask the questions of what does this now, mean, such a um, and what could diverse it be, and outstanding career in the public sector, private sector, um, now academic. A, uh, when you look back, what kind of advice would you give somebody who's maybe just starting out in the field, whether they're fresh out of college or doing a career transition? What advice could you share with them? Oh, or what advice would you ahead. give yourself if you were just yeah. starting again? <laughs> oh, mm. <laughs> um, that's a good, really, yeah, a little different. I, I, you know, I think one of the really important, there's a couple of things that are really important, you know, that, that I think everyone will recognize that, you know, curiosity, um, positive attitude, you know, uh, hard work, all, all those things are important to, to keep in mind. You want to be a good teammate um, and good follower as well as a good leader. But I think one of the things that's that's really important, I look back to things that, you know, kind of seminal points in my, in my life as well as career are the where, where you grow the most. And and I think the, where, where I always found what I ended up growing the most out of were the things that as I went into them scared me the most. Um, that would have been the easiest to step away from or to avoid. And so I, I, I would just encourage folks to, um, you know, not let, not let the, um, the, the, either the unknown or fear of the unknown or the, uh, oh my God, I don't know if I can do this. Um, or I'm pretty sure I can't do this, um, get, get in the way of you just go ahead and, and try it anyways, because, you know, however it comes out at the end, whether you succeed spectacularly or, or, you know, go up in flames it's where you're going to learn the most and grow the most um and generally you don't go up in flames and and you will engage in failures and then you just dust yourself off learn from that and push ahead but do the things that scare you yeah i love that i love that Okay. Well, Paul, thank you so much. I mean, just to wrap this up, where, where could people find you if they want to read more about your work at the intelligence project or, or maybe if they want to connect? So just, uh, uh, look at the, um, uh, the, uh, Belfer center for science and international affairs, uh, website, great series, you know, not only the events that we do, uh, regularly, but just an amazing series of events and, and, uh, seminars and webinars and papers that are, uh, open, uh, for the public. Uh, on uh, on a huge array of of, um, of technical issues of of, um, of cyber issues of policy issues of geographic issues it's, a, it's just a great resource there was just a, a primer that um, uh, that was put out on uh, quantum uh, and implications of, uh, uh, you know what it is what its implications are you know, for government and private sector and some recommendations coming out of it is as an example of, of um, just really great resource material. So encourage folks to look at that. Um, I'm at, uh, you know, Paul underscore Colby at 
hks.harvard.edu, but that's uh, uh, online as well. So happy to hear from folks. Okay. Yeah. And for everyone listening, I mean, we'll make sure to, to put those things. We'll link those in the show notes so you can take a look and start doing some reading. Paul, we, we can't thank you enough. I mean, for everyone listening, they don't realize this, but we had some connectivity issues. We, we had some technical challenges. So thank you so much for your patience. I, I know I speak for Michael and I when I say it was worth the wait for us because um, yeah, we're just so incredibly grateful for what you've shared today. And I know everyone else is going to love it and look forward to this. So, so thank you so much. We really appreciate having you on. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Mike. Um, I love that you're doing this podcast. Um, and I think it, uh, it's going to, uh, fill a really important niche, both for the, the, the growing community of, uh, in private sector intelligence professionals out there, but also uh, on the government side and in particular for folks that are, uh, that are using um, their capability and services. Yeah. Thank you very much. That means a lot, especially coming from you. So, all right, everyone, that wraps up episode two with Paul Colby. Thank you for your time and attention. And until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Bye everyone.